Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, and welcome back to the Prospect Podcast, where we speak to the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by two excellent guests. Tom Clark, who is a contributing editor at Prospect, former editor of Prospect, a fellow at the Joseph Rowntree Foundation, and the editor of a new book, Broke, Fixing Britain's Poverty Crisis. And Matthew Desmond, the Pulitzer Prize winning author of Evicted, a professor of sociology, who has a new book out called Poverty by America. In today's discussion, we will explore the similarities and differences between both countries' escalating poverty crisis and ask whether in the post-pandemic landscape with a fraying social security net during a cost-of-living crisis, is the UK edging closer to its transatlantic cousin? Thank you so much to Tom and Matt for joining us. Pleasure to be here. My first question is for both of you. What made you decide to write or edit your new books and what did the process reveal to you about the landscape of poverty in your respective countries? So I've been working on poverty all my adult life. You know, um, I grew up in a poor home and I've lived in poor communities. I've read statistical reports. I've talked to union reps, but I was just convicted that I didn't have a clear answer to the fundamental question, which is why there's so much poverty in America, the richest country on the planet, and how we could finally end it. So this is my book that reaches for answers to those questions. It really tries to understand the enormity of the problem, the fundamental causes of it, and builds a case for how we can eradicate it, not treat it, but cure it. And Tom, what about Bray? Um Well, uh, I mean, like, like Matt, um, I've been working for a long time, I guess, in and around this this subject, often in a more kind of statistical type way. And we all know as journalists, though, that like it's the stories that kind of get people. And there was a bit of a light bulb moment last year when we could see there was starting to be this evidence of this mounting poverty crisis. But it didn't seem to be cutting through. All anyone wanted to talk about was how many crates of wine had been smuggled into Downing Street for Boris Johnson's own parties. And then there was this moment on on ITV's Good Morning where, uh, you know, this widow, 77 years old, I think she was, Elsie, kind of rung in and put a question uh, through the presenter to the Prime Minister about what he thought about the fact she had to spend her days travelling round 
on her on the bus to avoid paying the heating bill. And um, Boris Johnson just kind of, is normally very good at kind of like diffusing questions, but he just really kind of waffled and, and sort of said, oh, you know, isn't it great that pensioners like Elsie have a freedom pass since to, thanks to the bold decisions made by this government that they can therefore travel on the bus. And you just got this sense, like everyone started sharing this on social media. There were reports on it in the papers, I think, as well as the papers that would normally cover it. And you just were reminded that it's the individual stories sometimes that grab people. So in a way, it's the opposite story to has done fabulous prize winning reportage himself in the past and and, and then wanted to to kind of contextualise it and, and, and add a bit more theory, as he says. And Matthew, your central argument, kind of that to understand poverty, we must look beyond the poor, I found a really compelling reframing of the problem. And I wondered if you could tell us more about this in the American context, but also whether you think it has relevance to other capitalist democracies like the UK. So I ran across this line by the novelist Tommy Orange, and he writes, it's like these kids are jumping out of burning buildings falling to their deaths, and we think that the problem is that they're jumping. And when I read that line, I thought, gosh, that's a perfect encapsulation of the American poverty debate for decades, even for over 100 years. The poverty debate in America, and I would argue in the UK too, has been really focused on the poor themselves, their welfare benefits, their neighborhoods, their families. I wanted to write a book about the fire, I wanted to write a book about who started it and who's warming their hands by it. And I think that in rich democracies like America and like the UK, we cannot understand the fundamental drivers of poverty without looking at how the society as a whole is organized and how a lot of us are implicated in all the scarcity around us. And would you be able to tell us a little bit more about the ways that a lot of us are implicated? Pleasure. So um, we exploit the poor. You know, we demand cheap prices. We uh, enjoy high returns on our stock portfolios. But there's a human cost to those prices and those portfolios. And the costs are borne by the working poor and increasingly in America, the working homeless. Now, corporate shareholders benefit from that, but so do a lot of consumers. And, And, you know, half of Americans are invested in the stock market. We benefit from that, too. Or look at how the American welfare state is shaped. You know, the top 20% of income earners in America take home about $35,000 a year from the government, but the bottom 20% take home only $25,000, a 40% difference. So the welfare state is, is lopsided. We give the most to families that have plenty already. And then we also live in exclusive segregated communities. We build walls around our communities and we hoard opportunities behind those walls, and force the poor to live in areas of concentrated disadvantage and desperation. So I do think that we're all part of this problem and part of the solution. Tom, I think it's really interesting that Matthew there has highlighted kind of the the working poor and the struggles that they're facing in America at the moment. I think that's something that you also tease out in the UK in your book. Yeah, I mean, the, the demographics of who who counts as poor has, has changed a lot in the UK, perhaps changed more than in America, where, you know, there's been this very stubborn kind of race line um, running running through who the, the poorest people are quite often. Um, and in the UK, um, 
you know, from the Elizabethan poor law onwards, when people talked about the poor, uh, they were often talking about elderly people. And in, in the last 30 years, you know, we've had a spectacular success, really, in that, like, if you take a poor, an, a, an old person at random now and pluck them out of the population, they are no more likely, in fact, they are less likely to be in poverty than the person drawn from the population as a whole. And uh, one nice line in, in, in Matthew's book is about, um, you know, progressives or whatever you want to call them, reformers, are often fluent in the language of despair rather than in the language of repair. And what's happened to pensions in the UK? And you think, actually, you know, these things can be fixed and they have been fixed sometimes over time. But the flip side of that, which I'm afraid is just as ugly, is that, uh, you know, we've got many more people who are younger, many more um, children than 10 or 15 years ago. And as you alluded to, we've got many more people now who are working, who are um, poor. And we've got whole new ways in which the economy operates. It's not just about social security system. It's also about gig work, new ways of working. And exactly like Matthew says, you know, any of us who've caught an Uber or summoned up a delivery who have benefited from that convenience without necessarily stopping to think what it means for the poor sod who sat on the bike. And that's why in this book, we kind of go and talk to some of these people. And, you know, unsurprisingly, the hours are long and they're punishing. But more than that, they don't know what they're getting paid for and what they're not. And there is almost a kind of direct one-to-one correlation between the flexibility that, that we enjoy and maybe even some poor people enjoy in their capacity as consumers. But then when they're on the other side of it, it really hurts. And it means that people don't have the headspace, the time to plot an escape into a different and more stable form of work. And Matthew, would you be able to tell us a bit more about the idea of a drive towards private opulence and public squalor? I think this is a maybe more of a uniquely American concept. So this concept is an old concept, and but it was made famous by the economist John Kenneth Galbraith in his book, The Affluent Society. And what he talks about is a process that locks in when you have rich families living in the same country a, as poor families. And what happens is, you know, the rich families have this incentive to divest from from public spending. There was a time we used to be want there was a time where we wanted to be free of, of bosses and now we kind of want to be free of bus drivers. You know, we want to uh, drive our own cars. Maybe we send our kids to private schools. We um, don't want to pay high taxes that we don't think go to families like ours. And as this kind of process locks in, you have uh, riches, p- private riches that are kind of surrounded by decaying public streets and parks and schools and, and transportation systems. Anyone who's been to the sprawling cities in the developing world have seen this. Like you can go to Lagos in Nigeria and see mansions surrounded by barbed wire and security guards with machine guns. But America has a taste of that, of that too. And pretty soon the public, what is considered a public good, is something that's used uh, almost exclusively by by poor folks themselves. And even the poor themselves come to despise those things because they're often shabby and and underfunded. And so that is a kind of self-perpetuating system that locks in and is a a real kind of violence that happens uh, when inequality is allowed to run, run amok. 
And Tom, with the NHS sort of on the brink of collapse after the pandemic, do you see any parallels in that increasing numbers of wealthier people looking towards their own private health insurance and things like that? Well, there's a stunning statistic, which is that self-pay out-of-pocket treatment is now kind of, I think, in the UK, I think I read this, higher than it is in the US. But of course, that masks a much bigger difference, which is in... Britain only, I don't know, 10 or 15% of people might have private insurance that automatically jumps the queue without them having to dip into their pocket. Whereas in America, anyone who's well-to-do would have that. So, I mean, it is a, it is still a very different system. And although the system in Britain is, you know, desperate and although, you know, people are, are waiting in, in, in desperate ways, it tends to be... It tends to be some distance from, you know, it's a question of people being miserable for a number of months on a waiting list for a knee replacement or something. And that might ultimately shorten their life. But it it doesn't tend to be quite so much in the kind of crisis situations. And Matthew talks in his book about a roommate of his who stood on a nail and as a result, um, uh, combined with his diabetes, ends up losing his leg. Now, I don't think you'd have that in the UK because people wouldn't be scared to go to A&E. It's, it, it's getting worse. It's failure. There's a, you can see the danger of like the idea that we're all in it together. Taxes kind of coming a bit unstuck if people are having to dip into their pocket. But when it comes to, you know, we don't quite have the analogous group to the tens of millions of uninsured in America. Matthew, could you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. Well, when you look at the American safety net and you compare it to the safety net of many countries in Europe, including Britain, we're we're far behind our other peer nations. We certainly have the resources to devote more to things like universal health care, a right to housing, child care, but we haven't put those resources into play. And one of the reasons is that we've chosen to subsidize affluence instead of alleviate poverty. And so every year in America, $1. trillion is devoted to tax breaks. That's like double our military spending. And most of those tax breaks accrue to the wealthiest Americans. And I'm not just talking about the uber rich, the top 1% or 0.001%. I'm talking about quite a lot of us that benefit from things like child savings plans, the home mortgage deduction, which the UK doesn't have and should not have. So, for example, you know, if you're a homeowner in America, you can deduct the interest on your mortgage. That costs my country $190 billion every year. That's enough money to permanently establish a child tax credit, for example, that we rolled out during the pandemic, which cut the child poverty rate in half. And so a country like ours certainly does not lack for resources. When it comes to addressing poverty, we lack for something else. I'm just going to butt in, though, and say we do have, although we don't have mortgage tax relief and we don't have exactly the same student loan schemes and so on as as you've got, we do have our own equivalent list that goes to many uh, tens of, of, of billions in tax deductions. We've got um, uh, pension tax relief, which is worth more to high earners. We have got um, council tax system of the main property tax which is both quite low relative to the swollen and huge value of houses now but also by design is regressive with respect to 
house price. So, you know, uh, you can have a house that's worth eight times more and only pay twice as much council tax or something. And we've also got the biggest taboo of the lot is um, we don't have any capital gains tax on the what's called the main family home. Now, you know, if you bought a house 50 years ago in anywhere in London and you, you now own it outright, you've made up hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of pounds by sitting still in a in a house that you owned and that goes completely untaxed at a time when you know we've got a doubling of malnutrition in um uh in, in hospitals we've got um an increase just the other week uh since since we finished with the book tax the uh rough sleeping back up by a quarter now coming back from the pandemic um situation and of course this move to a kind of really dicey um, system of feeding people in food banks, which has, has gone up by 10 or 20 fold in the last 10 or 12 years. So again, we are we are making choices. Right. This is outrageous, I feel. And I feel like this should be like the looping incantation of the poverty debate. You know, when we have our elected officials coming to the mic and using their grown up voice and saying, gosh, you know, we, we just can't afford to feed everyone in our country. We can't afford to get everyone adequate housing. We just have to throw that dishonest, sinful statement back to them in the form of calling attention to how lopsided our safety nets are and how much we do to supplement families that are quite well well off. And, you know, reading Tom's book, it's amazing to read so many stories of so many people here in the UK that are eating one meal a day, having cereal as our only meal, going without heat in the winter, facing eviction for no fault of their own, unnecessarily. There was a study published recently in the United States that showed that if the top 1% of income earners just paid the taxes they owed, not paid higher taxes, just paid what they already owed, the country could raise an additional $175 billion a year. That's basically enough to lift everyone out of poverty in America. We can do this. But when you put that, Matt, when you put that to people, how do you get on? Because you do talk in the book about talking to someone else, I'm guessing someone kind of middle class and kind of or what we'd call middle class and you'd probably call a bit more elite and say, we've got to go after these tax dodgers, we can do this. And you say this ended in a chest poking argument in the in the restaurant. I mean, you must have had a taste of the kind of resistance that you run into then when you start challenging these middle class perks. Yes, I think that there is going to be resistance, but um, nothing is easy, you know, and we've been here before as a country. We've been in a place where the country is incredibly polarized. Nothing was getting through Congress in the 1960s. And then suddenly we had sweeping civil rights legislation. We had the modern American safety net being birthed with the Great Society and the War on Poverty. How is that possible when such a broken, polarized, resistant system it was possible because social movements put unrelenting pressure on lawmakers, especially the civil rights movement and the labor movements. And I think we're seeing those movements rise up again and looking at what the fight for 15 has done in America to change the conversation about low-wage work or looking about what the housing movement has done to establish things in COVID like the eviction moratorium and rent relief, which saved tens of thousands of lives. So you're right, Tom, right? It's going to be a struggle and it's going to be a fight, but I think it's been something that we fought in one before. I also have to say too, like I'm bringing good news. I'm bringing good news. I'm bringing a call for America that's more connected, 
more inclusive, happier, safer, freer. I think America without poverty, it is, is an America where prosperity can be felt across the board. And so I think this does mean some of us are going to have to give up some things that we've gotten quite used to. But I think that we, what we would get in return is something of a higher order value. Tom, I think one thing that I really felt kind of having worked previously in the charity sector with clients who are facing homelessness, facing a variety of problems. And when we're interacting kind of with the apparatus of the state, it felt like to me, austerity as a project was creating and reinforcing a narrative about poorer people and a narrative about why they're in the circumstances that they're in, that is closer, was moving closer towards the kind of narrative that has historically been in the US, you know, that people are responsible for their circumstances and that a more punitive kind of approach in which we saw, you know, things like the universal credit being rolled out, caps on people based on, you know, you're not going to get more benefits if you have more children. It, It stops at two children and that's it. And then also, obviously, everything with no recourse to public funds, this kind of growing group of people that, Tom, again, your book highlights, who do exist outside of the state safety net in the UK because they're scared to go forward to the authorities or they don't actually have the right to go forward to the authorities. Tom, I wanted to ask whether you felt that in the UK, kind of these past years of austerity have moved the window on poverty in the UK? And if so, how we move it back? Well, I I think it is starting to move back. I mean, you highlight there at the end the you know the worst the US style destitution that we have is very largely now these migrants who just don't have a welfare state but they might have lived here for in the book there's this woman we call Mary who's been on the run from political violence in Zimbabwe for 20 years left in such a panic she never had the right papers therefore never got the right status now 50 years old she arrived here when she was 30 She's not a drug addict. She goes to church, you know, whether you think that matters or not. She's not your typical kind of person. And yet to be able to sleep, she has to get on the mega bus, the cut price bus that goes from London to Leeds, pick up a ticket maybe off the pavement, get on it, drive to London, drive back to Leeds overnight, and that will give her eight hours sleep. And that's that's the kind of um, pass that, that, that we drive people to when there's when there's no welfare state. And right now with that migrant group, obviously there's a, there's a concerted drive to... Um, kind of ramp up the salience of the divide between migrants and and everyone else. But um, these things can be contested. They can be contested in small ways and they can be contested in big political ways as well. So on the smaller, lower end of the scale, like I talked there about who we met in in the book in London, who's going around doing these hours for Deliveroo and he gets involved in the Independent Workers Trade Union of Great Britain And just gives him, as well as kind of allowing him to go on strike and protest and say, you know, we're working for you, but what are you doing for us? It gives him a new confidence and a new kind of uh, feeling that he's in charge. And eventually, when we went back and checked up on him a year later, after the original report we did of that, you know, he'd got himself into a better place, but had stayed active in the union. And likewise, we talk about a woman who was getting more and more fed up with her landlord who lives in London and she she's a I think she's a teacher she's in her 30s kind of person who would have owned their own house a generation ago but now has to kind of share in this dodgy kind of private rental market and she used to be what she in her own words a sort of soft left pragmatist but you know she had one letter from the landlord too much requesting an increase in the rent 
at the same time as she'd had one too many unreturned calls about doing anything about the leaking ceiling and all the rest of it. And so when someone gave her a leaflet about London Tenants Union um, on the underground, she actually kind of looked at it and went along and tried to stop at least by someone time who was getting the bailiffs come round from a flat in the Elephant and Castle. And just by being there with 15 other people, making life a bit awkward for the bailiffs, got that person the time they needed to be able to kind of, you know, it's precious time when you're being kicked out. Um, and um, uh, so, um, and then in turn, when she got the reputation with her landlord for being a bit too kind of spicy and starting to ask for too many things, the um, inevitable kind of eviction notice comes through but she was very well placed having got involved in this activism to be able to stand her ground and so you see these stories at a micro level and then at a bigger picture level and sorry Matt this is very UK specific but the the first slug of these great holes that were cut in the social security safety net between 2010 and 2015 they essentially all went through Um, Labour had just been voted out of office and didn't really dare question the story. They just thought, you know, there's no money left. What are we going to do about it? We need to look responsible. So they let it go through. And then, of course, you had Jeremy Corbyn, who, whatever his problems, um, kind of always stood up against every single benefit cut that was made and said, we're not having this and, uh, and, and made a trenchant stand about it. Whilst Keir Starmer's run away so far from Jeremy Corbyn, he's even kicked him out of the Labour Party or prevented him standing from from Parliament. He hasn't gone back to that business of being very judgmental about benefit claimants, which is where Labour was for a long time before Jeremy Corbyn. And since 2015, far more of these benefit cuts that they've tried to introduce, they have been driven back. You know, they were driven back on cutting tax credits for working people. They were driven back on uh, certain disability cuts that they wanted to make. And they were driven back again when they introduced this emergency help in the pandemic and then they tried to get rid of it. They were driven back on that because they did get rid of it, but they, in return, had to agree to give some extra money for the working poor. So, sorry, that's a bit rambly and long, but what I'm saying is that when you stand up to these things, it kind of, um, and as one side of the political pitch does, sort of say, no, we're not going to have this... Then you see the centre of opinion, as defined by the BBC or whatever, kind of like regards the pro-welfare state side as as respectable again, which it isn't if if everyone vacates the pitch. And you also see even some people on the conservative side say, oh, we're not sure about this. It doesn't sound very nice. And the political boundaries start to break down a bit. So, I mean, what I take from history and going right back to the 90s when New Labour first started doing this judgmental stuff on... um, benefit claimants is that you know some people have to stand up and in a full-throated way say we need a safety net and make the argument that the great majority of us other than the super rich might need it at some point and that starts to change the mood and Matthew drawing on that what does it mean to be a poverty abolitionist how can those of us who aren't living in poverty right now become that a poverty abolitionist shares with other abolitionist movements like the movement to abolish slavery and the movement to abolish mass prisons, that poverty isn't a minor social problem or a regrettable aspect of post-industrial society, but it's an abomination. It's a disgrace. It's a sin, and it has to be ended. 
not reduced or uh, nudged, uh, but completely ended. And it shares with other abolitionist movements that all this scarcity diminishes us all. It makes us feel less safe. It makes us feel icky when we go out to restaurants, when we go to hotels. It, it makes us feel implicated because we are. So I think at base, a poverty abolitionist is not easily pleased. Uh, our goal for poverty is zero. And in a rich country like America and in Britain, uh, this is a completely, uh, utterly attainable goal. I mean, lifting everyone out of poverty in America would take less than 1% of our GDP. And so we fight for policies that are bold. Uh, we fight for a rebalanced safety net. We fight for integrated communities. We refuse to be segregationists. We want to tear down our walls and, and welcome everyone into our communities, which is a rare thing in America. Most residential land in America is only zoned for single-family homes, so we, we are against that. We, we refuse to deny other children opportunities our children have received by going to good schools and, and living in safe communities. And we also search out our institutions in our schools, in our faith organizations, and our families to kind of see how are we shopping or investing or living or working in ways that are harmful to the poor. And we try to slowly but surely unwind ourselves from those activities. And so we could shop with our wallets. By In America, we can consult organizations like B Corps or Union Plus. So we make sure we are giving our money to companies that don't bust up unions and that treat their workers well. Not all of us have choice about where to shop, but those of us who do could, you know, leverage our values of economic justice. We can invest in a in a way that is anti-exploitation. We could write to our representatives and say, hey, I get these tax breaks and I really shouldn't get them. You know, please wind them down and redirect the funds to eviction defense, for example. And so I think that the movement to abolish poverty is at once a political project. We want bold, uncompromising solutions, but it's also a personal one, too. If we want Congress to act, we need to act ourselves. And taking your book, Poverty by America, what can the UK learn from that? I think we have a lot to learn from, from each other. I think that the title means that poverty is a state project. It's something that we have built by design, and, and we can unbuild it. And so I think that America gives the UK a, a warning, you know, a, a signal about what the country could look like if further austerity measures are enacted, if uh, further ways to protect wealth at the expense of the poor are pushed through, if the country becomes further segregated economically as it as it has been moving for the last 40 years. So there's policy lessons here, but I think that a, a resounding lesson isn't just that we can spend our way out of this problem. Certainly, we can make deeper investments in ending poverty, but we have to reach for longer-term solutions, which means we need to confront like the unrelenting exploitation of the poor in the labor market, the housing market, and the financial markets. Like Tom mentioned earlier, poverty isn't just a condition of not having enough money. It's also a condition of not having enough power or choice and being taken advantage of that. And so we need to do things like strengthen worker power. 
make sure tenants and renters aren't exploited in the labor market, and make sure banks and other lending institutions are not just saddling low-income families with these huge fines and fees. I hesitate to butt in on this because I know that both of you know much more about housing than me, but I do think that this UK story of housing is a real case in point here because, you know, we spend hugely more. I don't have the figures to hand, but I wouldn't be surprised if it was 10 times more on rent subsidies, now called housing benefit or universal credit, than we did when I was a a small child. Um, uh, And, you know, like all these desperate fixes that we want now, you know, to, to make sure that people can keep a roof over their head involves spending even more on rent subsidies in the immediate term. But we know that can't be the sustainable final position. We can't just keep giving more and more money to landlords because that's not what we think we've got a welfare state to do. So, you know, we need prevention and we need cure. It's kind of quite hard when you're seeing these dark winter days with the people not having enough heat and all the rest of it, that, uh, you know, in a sense, there has to be a focus on the cure for now. But like, as we do it, let's for God's sake, keep our um, eyes on the on the prevention bit as well. I think this point is really huge. And I think that there is an argument in America, and I think in the UK too, from the left, that if we just poured more money at the problem, that would make a big difference. And that's not untrue, right? And we certainly have the resources to invest more deeply in our communities that are struggling and deserve safety and prosperity. But it's also true that we need policies that don't accommodate poverty, but disrupt poverty. So the housing allowances is a a policy that helps, that is a lifeline to so many families in this country, and also does nothing to hit the root cause of the problem, right? And in America, we have a huge program called the Earned Income Tax Credit. It's basically if you're a low-income worker, you have kids, the government subsidizes your wages. You can kind of bump up in wages every year. This is a program that lifts millions and millions of families above the poverty line and depresses wages, right? And is a corporate subsidy. So I think that we need to think beyond those kind of policies into ways that we can start building like sustainable, long-term solutions that disrupt poverty. And there's a really irritating final question that cuts across what you both just said there. If you could make one change tomorrow, what would it be? I would make sure the IRS has enough people power to ensure the top 1% of taxpayers in America pay the taxes they owed. That would give us enough money to basically fill the poverty gap. We could triple our investment in affordable housing with what we would earn from that. We could establish and make permanent the child tax credit that reduced child poverty in half in six months, six months during the pandemic with that one simple little twist. So that if I had to choose one thing, I would do that. And Tom? I mean, look, the thing I feel most strongly needs to be done is we need to like remake the connection between the needs that people have and the assistance that is available to them out of the safety net. There's probably a couple of policies you could choose to do that. The one I'd go for is one you've already mentioned, Sarah, which is getting rid of this idea that like once you've had more than two children, you're not going to get helped anymore because that's a policy that really treats the children themselves as if they were just a consumer good you know you've already had too much Toblerone this month we're not going to let you have any more well that's fine as far as the Toblerone eat is concerned but not really 
if the Toblerone is, um, you know, the next generation. And uh, it's a, it, so, so I'd, I'd do that, but then I can't let it lie without saying, and then once we've fixed those holes, we need to ratchet the thing up. I may be more pessimistic on some of the politics than Matthew, so I'm not sure about a big bang reform. I just think we can do this inching the thing up one or two percent a year for 10 years it would make a huge difference but you've got to you've got to fix those big holes first well thank you so much to tom and matthew for joining us today we could talk about this all day but we are going to have to wrap up here if you enjoyed this podcast listen out for a new episode of the prospect podcast next week and while you're here why not subscribe to something slightly different Prospect Lives is a monthly series of audio diary entries from our family of seven writers, including Sheila Hancock, Alice Goodman and Mike Brearley. Sometimes it will make you laugh, sometimes it will make you cry, but it will definitely give you a snapshot of the lives of people who live differently to you. Just search Prospect Lives wherever you get your podcast or click on the link in the show notes of this episode. 